You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McClendon. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. Sarah, I can't help but notice, are, are those new glasses? They seem different from the ones that you normally wear. Is there something I should know about any technological add-ons that you've got going on this oh. podcast? Oh, it's not just glasses. It's a whole new face. And listeners, this is an audio medium, but I just peeled off the Mission Impossible style mask <laughs> to reveal a completely different face underneath my current one. Oh, the voice is the same, though. This is very disconcerting. <laughs> Now I know what it's like to be one of Ethan Hunt's enemies. Listeners, we are going to be talking about the new Mission Impossible movie that is out this week. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is coming up in our first segment. And for the watch list, we'll be discussing another disconcerting, fairly dreamlike movie. That's Satoshi Kon's 2006 anime film, Paprika. This cold open will self-destruct in five seconds. of fighting for the so-called greater good are over. This is our chance to control the truth, the concepts of right and wrong for everyone for centuries to come. You're fighting to save an ideal that doesn't exist. Never did. You need to pick a side. Welcome to episode 390, listeners. And, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a whiff of ozone in the air right now. You know, there's <laughs> things happen when you're, you know, you have self-destructing messages and whatnot, but we will soldier on. Um, and it is, you know, it's an audio medium. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm being too cutesy. Sorry. being cringe as the kids say oh no <laughs> well again on that one all right sorry jonathan i'm starting over the segment again <clears throat> welcome to episode 390 listeners we are going to wave away the ozone that's in the air from the self-destructing message and get down to to business here I'm looking forward to this episode, Sarah. I think there might be some pyrotechnics in our future. <laughs> if if only, you know, fortunately, 4th of July is in, is in the rearview mirror. I, I, has your dog recovered? Is, is, is... She's still anxious, but she's always anxious. At least there are no more fireworks kind of exacerbating that issue. Well, yeah, thank goodness for that. Listeners, we are going to be talking about two movies that have fireworks in slightly different modes for this week's episode. Looking forward to getting your thoughts on Satoshi Kon's Paprika in the watchlist segment, Sarah. Mm -hmm. But for now, I mean, we got to talk about the uh, giant movie in the room, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Yes. <laughs> we have to make sure to get the full title in there um, or else, you know, Tom Cruise will send the Scientologists after us and <laughs> nobody wants that. It's a movie that's too big, so they had to split it into two, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a big movie. It's mm -hmm. one of the biggest movies of the summer. So let's get down to it. 
This one follows Ethan Hunt, played by Cruz, and his IMF team as they embark on their most dangerous mission yet, to track down a terrifying new weapon that threatens all of humanity before it falls into the wrong hands. Which might sound a little bit familiar, but this one puts a little bit of twist on things with the new scary bugaboo in the room of... Uh, all-powerful AI. Mm -hmm. Um, So with control of the future and the fate of the world at stake and dark forces from Ethan's past closing in, a deadly race around the globe begins. Confronted by a mysterious all-powerful enemy, Ethan is forced to consider that nothing can matter more than his mission, not even the lives of those he cares about most. So that last little bit, I think, is maybe a good place for us to start, Sarah, because at least my impression of the franchise over the last couple of installments is that it's at least as interested in Ethan himself as in the missions that Ethan chooses to accept. Mm. So Sarah, I'm interested in getting your thoughts on that for this new installment. How successfully do you think it does when it probes into the darker corners of Ethan Hunt's persona, past, and line of work? I think there's diminishing returns on this one. And I might quibble with you a little bit on whether or not these later Mission Impossible movies probe into Ethan Hunt's psyche, because I think there's the metatextual level of the Mission Impossible movies just being an excuse for Tom Cruise to do ridiculous stunts, and this is his vehicle for being able to do that. I think this and the most recent installment before it, Mission Impossible Fallout, are less about getting into who Ethan Hunt is and more into getting into how other people perceive of Ethan Hunt as being. So in Fallout, the character that Alec Baldwin plays refers to Ethan Hunt as the living manifestation of destiny, which just is a very (laughs) over-the-top line, but it fits the bombast of the series, I think. And here, fairly early on, another character refers to Ethan Hunt as, uh, for all intents and purposes, quote, a mind-reading, shape-shifting agent of chaos, unquote, (laughs) as he is warning other people about who Ethan is and how dangerous he could possibly be to them and how they need to literally just keep pursuing him until they know for certain that he is gone because the man is relentless. That feels to me more like myth-making than revealing who Ethan Hunt is as a character. And I think that that's held up by the structure of these movies, which is literally just globetrotting the worlds to get from one stunt to a chase sequence to a stunt to a chase sequence over and over and over again. And that is enjoyable up to a certain point. I was kind of disappointed by this one, mostly because I feel like I could see a little bit of the stitching in the connective tissue in between those chase sequences and those stunt sequences a little bit more than I've been aware of them in previous installments. So, Kevin, I know you're you're a Mission Impossible 1 kind of guy. Uh-huh. Does number 7 work for you? Yeah, I mean, the first installment still stands, in my mind, undefeated atop the, the heap of the whole Mission Impossible franchise. I just, I really like the way that Brian De Palma realizes that film and integrates the you know the spy thriller elements with the action movie elements with the Tom Cruise star vehicle elements I think mm-hmm. it's never been done better and I think with this new one this is close to the bottom of the heap for me oh wow and I part of that is I you know 
it's fair to quibble with me saying that the the movies are interested in probing into Ethan Hunt's interior life. Mm-hmm. And that that's probably overstating a little bit on my part, I realize. I guess what I mean when I say that is that with with Fallout, you know, the, it brings back um, you know, his his ex-wife Michelle Monaghan from Mission Impossible 3. It's uh, you know, it's got a lot more business surrounding his his relationships and how he's got this core crew that isn't just co-workers for him or or team members they're they're people he cares deeply about Mm -hmm. uh both rogue nation and fallout really zeroed in on that and this one does that even more so with this whole like you said myth making i guess Mm -hmm. but it's not just uh interested in creating sort of this mythic ethan hunt that's sort of in the vein of like john wick where that too isn't interested in his interiority and is building a myth around him. But I feel like this Mission Impossible film is trying to really make more of his character than something like John Wick does. Mm. And even something like the uh, earlier Mission Impossible installments have. I just, there's something about this movie that feels for the first time like it's gotten the balance completely. Well, not completely wrong, but it's it's the balance has gotten shifted more into the, you know, who is Ethan Hunt hmm. and less on let's just watch watch Ethan Hunt do a bunch of ridiculous stuff and improvise, you know, things that will eventually save the day in a crazy heist or something. And I feel like that's that's not where this franchise's strengths are. And I don't know. I got kind of impatient with it after a while. Yeah, that's understandable. Maybe it's that question of who is Ethan Hunt because we I think we've always known who Ethan Hunt is. He's stubborn. He's going to be willing to be disavowed um, in favor of rescuing his friends. And I think that that's something that's been true since the very beginning of the franchise. It's just that each installment gets a little bit more over the top and a little bit more explosive and the stunts get more and more pronounced, I think, um, with each new installment within the story. This movie does try to dive in a little bit into the reasons behind why Ethan Hunt signed up for the job in the first place. And you're right, I'm frankly not really all that interested in those reasons, Um Because I don't think that you need to have an origin or an explanation for why he does the things that he does. He's Ethan Hunt. He's going to try to do the impossible because that's the only thing that he can do in order to be able to save the day. There really isn't all that much more that you can say about that character. It's just that he is, you know, a very um, stubborn person who also happens to be made of rubber and is willing to sprint across cities in order to get where he needs to go and jump off of buildings or, you know, motorbike off the side of a mountain if he needs to. Yeah, there's there's a part of this film where you can really feel, at least for me, it felt very much like the, the writers of the film breaking a sweat trying to give stakes, give higher stakes to... Uh, an already very high stakes franchise. So uh, in a meeting among, you know, Ethan's team and uh, Vanessa Kirby's kind of, you know, high tech arms dealer and this techno cultist from (laughs) Ethan's past, who's kind of got this uh, 
MacGuffin that everybody wants. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they, they're all kind of, they all have something that everyone else wants. They're all wanting to stop the others from getting the upper hand. And they're kind of at an impasse. And during this, this meeting between all these parties, um, one person brings up how uh, Hunt is kind of, over the course of his adventures, he's um, had a succession of women who uh, come to ruin because, come to ruin or who are hurt because of, you know, his devotion to his mission. And in... And it's delivered in a very portentous manner, I guess. And it, it feels like the movie is really trying to strain, like, this is this is something deep and dark. Like, this is a, sort of a, a Batman flaw for Ethan Hunt that he's just got. <laughs> he's got this, this something in him that hurts the people around him, kind of warps, uh, warps the space-time continuum around him that in a way that causes the people who are important to him to get hurt. And... That feels like it's straining to lend heft to, I think, what is supposed to be kind of fizzy, fun adventure movies. Mm-hmm. It feels self-serious in a way that's not constructive to the overall project, I guess. Yeah, I found that scene to be kind of disappointing because it feels like it's trying to clarify a little bit of Ethan Hunt as a character. It's also trying to raise the stakes um, for basically what what's at stake here and then it's also sort of unmasking the villain i think in a way so our, our techno cultist this guy named gabriel who's played by isai morales is it kind of a non-entity i think for me and i think this has been a problem for a lot of the mission impossible movies most of these movies admittedly kind of go in one ear and out the other for me and i have fun with that anyway but this character i think is supposed to feel a little bit more scary or a little bit more intimidating than some of the other villains in other missions impossible previously (laughs) and i just didn't get that sense because this character is essentially a mouthpiece for an ideology he doesn't really have much of a personhood to him to begin with he's just there to deliver portentous lines and to be to say things that are threatening but he's not really the one who's actually issuing the threats and i think of him in comparison to Philip Seymour Hoffman in Mission Impossible 3. And the presence that Philip Seymour Hoffman brought to his role as the villain in that installment, I think, is so indelible that it just about overshadows everything else within that movie. And here there's almost a black hole where a villain should be. And I didn't find that villain or that existential threat to be particularly interesting or scary because it just felt a little bit too abstract for me well it it, it, so when a movie makes me think so we you weren't on the the podcast for this episode but uh a while back i had chris williams on the show to help me talk about the new fast and the furious movie yes and I'm not a big Fast and Furious fan. Um, that probably doesn't come as a surprise to to most people. Mm-hmm. But it's a bad sign, I think, when I'm watching a Mission Impossible movie and I'm thinking, this feels a lot like a Fast and Furious movie. Oh wow! In in, in that in that the the way that it kind of pays lip service to these weighty concepts, but doesn't really have any 
meat on the bones. So for Fast and Furious, it's like the concept of family and how, you know, family is the most important thing. And that's kind of all that matters to this crew. In this one, it, it feels like there's something similar going on with Gabriel being kind of this shadowy figure from Ethan's past and the way he thinks about technology and the way he accuses Ethan of being, you know, having a dark side and his devotion to, you know, making the impossible missions possible. That too feels similar to the Fast and Furious movies in that it's there to sound weighty, but there's not really anything undergirding it. Like there's 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 not been enough scaffolding built around that for that to really hold up under scrutiny. So it feels more like lip service than anything to me. Huh. Um, so thematically, I think with Fast and Furious, I think they can get away with saying family because everybody brings their conception of family. And if you have a good association with that word, you can just sort of prop that up yourself as an audience member. I can't believe I'm defending the Fast and Furious <laughs> movies um, because I am not a particularly huge fan of those movies. Um, necessarily. But here, I think what disappoints me is there is so much going on within Mission Impossible. And again, it's a bubblegum action movie where we're really all just there to watch Tom Cruise defy death. And you don't really need much more than that. And so I think invoking the abstract concept of technology and, you know, potentially the doom of mankind, they've brought in the MacGuffins that are potentially world-ending before. And I think those feel like they're still fun to watch because it's literally just, oh, there's a bomb that everybody needs to go and get. But once you start invoking some of the slightly more real-world dangers, I think, that this movie does have on its mind, that's where I think I get a little bit of that disconnect. Because this is a movie that is very much concerned with the idea of AI and technology kind of taking over our ability to relate with each other within the real world. There's a sequence in here, I think a, quite a good chase sequence set within um, an airport where our heroes are tracking somebody around the airport and different people's faces get swapped in and out by a security program, essentially. And we have to watch them sort of adjust in real time with the limitations of the technology that up until that point has been their greatest ally. And that's a lot of fun to watch because that's also kind of a theme with all of the other Mission Impossibles up until that point. I think Mission Impossible is at its best when our heroes are given a ton of gadgetry and then that gadgetry almost immediately breaks and then they have to improvise off the, off the cuff. And here we get some of that improvisation, but it's not because the technology isn't working. It's because the technology is working. And I find that to be a really interesting twist. But at the same time, it also kind of bumps up against that real world. Can you really even tell what is real anymore when everything has been mediated by the internet or by somebody else who's doing all of that research for you? Yeah, I I think that angle is... So even though this is one of the weakest installments for, for me, I think it's probably in this one area is among the strongest of them in that the the MacGuffin doesn't feel like just a MacGuffin. It feels there's a lot of interesting tension to the way it interacts specifically with the world of this franchise, which is, you know, these super spies with all sorts of technology at their fingertips suddenly realize that they can't trust this technology to carry them any longer. And what does that do? That kind of takes something away from them that up to 
that this point has been taken completely for granted. Mm -hmm. That's really engaging. Um, I also think that that really helps Gabriel, even though I think it's fair to say he is kind of like a non-entity and that he's not developed enough to really feel fully present as a, as a villain. I do really like kind of the little touches that Christopher McQuarrie gives us of him being religiously devoted to this sort of uber technology that uh that is the real main antagonist hmm. there's one shot we get of him he's you know they're, they're all kind of converging on uh on a train for for the climax and we get a shot of of him arriving almost like dracula he's shut up in this coffin hmm. and he's wearing kind of a, a mask over his face that presumably is uh him interfacing with this this technology and that's really weird and cool and interesting hmm. and i wanted so much more of that i think so much time is taken away from that because we have to you know have all this intoning about you know ethan hunt and does he struggle with guilt over the you know the women in his life that he's not been able to protect from the fallout from his missions uh the the feds who are chasing him around because of course he goes rogue of uh, course the film even lampshades it and says like he goes rogue that's just what ethan hunt does you know <laughs> at this point we're just used to him doing it in every single movie and all that stuff it's just a lot of busy work and I really just want to see if if we're going to have sort of the shadowy figure from Ethan's past who's a techno cultist, I really want to dig in on that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it gets distracted by all these fast and furious-y kind of uh, more portentous elements that, number one, I don't, I just don't buy because the previous franchise installments don't really feel like they've been setting it up in that strong of a, of a fashion and also it's just they're not nearly as interesting as techno dracula showing up for <laughs> a heist in his weird computer coffin like that's great i love that give me more of that i love <laughs> that read of that scene yeah i i think this this movie kind of falls a little bit victim to the process by which all missions impossible are made which is that they literally build the movie around the stunts so they always start with the stunts and then as they're shooting the movie, they write the script in order to be able to get the connective tissue in between each of these stunts. I don't think there was ever a single Mission Impossible movie that started filming before the script was completed. It just doesn't happen. And for the most part, I'm satisfied with that. Here, it feels, again, a little bit like diminishing returns because the stunts are so spectacular. And then the connective tissue is just thin enough that I can start to kind of see and feel the holes within those things. But I do kind of want to get into some of the stunt work and the stuff that is really like the reason why we're all in the movie in the movie theater watching a Mission Impossible movie, which is how did those stunts work for you? Uh, you know, I think this is part of my issue with this movie is I don't know that I was as interested in the in the stunts this time around. Hmm. Uh, I mean, there's that moment from that everyone has already seen in the trailers where Tom Cruise, you know, is, you know, rides a motorcycle off a mountain and, you know, that's, that's cool, but we've already seen it all in the trailers. And I don't think there's really anything else in this movie that really has the same sort of uh, 
sizzle of the botched base jump with Tom Cruise and Henry Cavill from from Fallout, mm-hmm. or or even the um, the bathroom fight uh, in in that same film, which you know it's hap- it's all in you know a single location. There's not a ton of crazy stuff going on there, but it was the core the action choreography and the humor of that scene Mm -hmm. made it really engaging in a way that i really wasn't engaged by any of the action scenes in this uh there's one uh sequence where um ethan hunt is chasing kind of chasing after gabriel he's trying to intercept him um and two uh of the two female leads, uh, Ilsa, played by Rebecca Ferguson, who's returning for this film, mm-hmm. and uh, a new uh, female lead, Grace, played by Haley Atwell, mm-hmm. um, they're also kind of converging on this. And it's kind of got the same sort of... It, it's very high... It's a very high-energy sequence, but I guess we're... I'm going to reach for that word again. It's just... It's portentous in a way that's kind of... it. it feels weighed down rather than weighty (laughs) and it it didn't have the same kind of sizzle for me that other missions impossible stunts have in the past and i think that probably extends to a lot of the other action sequences as well i don't know if it's if it's me the cinematography just isn't doesn't have the pizzazz of like that nightclub from fallout or Mm -hmm. the langley break-in from the first movie but there's just it feels a little bit like I don't know it, it's missing a certain something for me. I think structurally that sequence is a little bit weak because it comes after a series of chase sequences. So unlike other Mission Impossible movies, we don't get a ton of spectacular stunts strung throughout the entire film. It's mostly chase sequences leading up to that big jump off the mountain. Um, and I do think that there are some chases that do work really well here so you mentioned grace played by Haley atwell who's kind of the, a newcomer to the franchise and uh, i'd mentioned before that scene where people can't really rely on security cameras because the security cameras keep swapping out other people's faces we get a really interesting sort of cat and mouse game within that sequence where tom cruise ethan hunt and grace are trying to evade multiple interested parties throughout that location. And the way the two of them sort of do almost a waltz around the airport as they're trying to evade other people, I think, does have a lot of that snap in the pizzazz. And a lot of that, I think, is possibly the chemistry between Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell. I, I think that the two of them play off each other really I, well here. I really like Atwell in this film. She's quite good. And it's a lot of fun to watch her improvise in real time as her character and it's also a lot of fun to watch her kind of try to outmaneuver Ethan Hunt even when he isn't fully aware that that's what she's trying to do at any given point because he's already got multiple plates in the air he's trying to prevent an explosion from happening and he's also trying to evade the authorities and the bad guys all at the same time he doesn't have room for a fourth thing to spin around Um, And so she's able to sort of dance circles around him in a way that kind of feels good to watch Ethan Hunt be a little bit vulnerable in a way that we don't really get to see him be all that much anymore. And there's another chase sequence involving Grace and Ethan um, in a car around an Italian city that I really enjoyed watching. So 
Here's the thing. Okay. That that's not a bad chase sequence, and this might be because you haven't seen the new Fast and Furious movie, but there the new Fast and Furious movie also has a chase sequence through the streets of Rome using some of the exact same locations hmm. as in this one. And frankly, it eats Mission Impossible's lunch. Oh wow. It's a lot like it's just I, I, I prefer it. Um which isn't to say the Mission Impossible sequence is bad. It's just I don't know, it's it's just not as a, a lot of the interest comes from the performances rather than the actual mm-hmm. action choreography and the stunts, which is not a bad thing, mm-hmm. but it's also kind of it doesn't stand with the best of the Mission Impossible franchise where it has both. Yeah, that's fair. I think with this one, the added dimension of having two characters handcuffed together who would really prefer not to be handcuffed together really, really worked for me because there was a little bit of that tension where they're both trying to work together and they're also failing to work together and they're also at odds with each other that that kind of worked for me. I, I, I will say I really like Palm Clementief as uh, Paris, yes. who's sort of the the henchwoman for Gabriel and I think her performance is great. She's basically just baring her teeth the entire time and just almost literally chewing the scenery. It's a very fun performance, almost entirely without dialogue. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is a participant in that action sequence without giving away too much. And she's a lot of fun. Um, I, I, I just, I wanted more, I wanted more <laughs> of her. I feel like maybe part of the problem is a lot of these sequences we're describing are not just Hunt and Gabriel and, uh, you know, kind of playing a game of cat and mouse. There's also a third group, uh, uh, spearhead by Shea Wiggum as a fed who's been tasked by uh, Kittredge, who people will be, remember from the very first movie. He's back mm-hmm. uh, just as dour and bureaucratic as ever. Um, but he's also kind of... Uh, sicked these uh, feds onto Ethan to kind of bring him in, essentially, which, of course, we kind of expect that. And they have, they're they also going to be one prong of all of these action sequences, and they are just not interesting. <laughs> like, I, I, I feel bad saying that, I guess, but I just don't think the, the characters have the same interest as either Hunt's crew or Gabriel's crew. And yet, because they're just such an integral part of the plotting, they have to be, we have to keep um, finding a place for them in the cross-cutting structure of these action sequences. And I think maybe that might be kind of what loads it down a little bit. And it's just, it doesn't feel very economical. Hmm. I did enjoy Shea Wiggum's line deliveries a lot, but he is kind of that world-weary sort of agent, which does have sort of a dampening factor on a lot of the goings-on here. So... That might be part of it. Part of it, I think, is just there are so many plates up in the air. And a lot of this is stuff, I think, like you'd mentioned, um, we've sort of seen before. So I still haven't seen Fast X, but I was actually thinking about Indiana Jones quite a bit Mm -hmm. with this one. There are a lot of similarities between the set pieces in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and this iteration of Mission Impossible. So much so that I counted on my fingers and I think there's like four or five where the beats aren't all exactly the same. The vehicles aren't all all exactly the same, but there are enough similarities that it did give me some pause seeing those two so close to each other. 
So here's an interesting thing that, that occurred to me while watching Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Tom Cruise is 61 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet this film doesn't remark at all on his age. And, and obviously Cruise himself as a screen presence is very much invested in not looking his age. Like he's in incredible shape. May we all run as well as he does when we're 61. I yes. mean, it's it's he's very physically impressive, I guess. Um, but the thing that's interesting as a counterpoint to the new Indiana Jones is Ford does a very good job of kind of... He feels human in a way, I guess, that, that Ethan Hunt doesn't. Mm. And um, I guess for a movie, since Dead Reckoning is so invested in kind of making Hunt vulnerable um, in terms of digging into to his past, kind of putting some very important relations to relationships to him in danger, it's odd that the the central performance of the film... I don't really see a whole lot of that kind of vulnerability that we see, for example, in Ford's performance in Dial of Destiny. Mm-hmm. And that maybe that might be part of it as well, is that Cruz is su- as a screen presence is just so interested in being sort of an action star um, that it's it, ju- it just feels disingenuous in a way for the movie to sort of position him as a vulnerable person when he the performance doesn't have a whole lot of vulnerability to it. Yeah, and maybe that's because the franchise doesn't really have all that much else places to go after Fallout. So Ethan is very vulnerable in Fallout multiple times. You mentioned that bathroom fight sequence. He gets his butt kicked in that sequence multiple times. And then he gets his butt kicked again by another villain later on in the movie. But I think the standout scene for me for Fallout isn't even an action sequence at all. It's a moment in which um, a young police officer interferes with something that Ethan Hunt and his team are trying to do. He's trying to save the world. And the police officer gets shot um, by one of the bad guys. And Ethan has to choose between thwarting the bad guys and then also making sure that this person is going to end up being safe. And it's just him and her for a moment making eye contact and he literally just apologizes to her and there's nothing else that he can do. And you really feel that powerlessness in that moment more so than I think Ethan Hunt has ever really been powerless at any other point in any of these other movies. And it's a really beautiful moment, I think. And it works so well because it's so understated. And here, within Dead Reckoning, we're just trying to underline that helplessness that he feels in the face of the march of time and the march of technology. It's a lot of telling and not showing. Yeah, it really is, which I find kind of disappointing because this is also a movie that is technically the first half of a story and that I also found kind of a little bit shapeless. I think I landed a little bit more positively on this one than you did, but I also feel a little bit weird defending it because there are so many flaws with the storytelling here. And is it an enjoyable time at the movies? Yeah. Will I go see it again with my husband when it opens this weekend? Yeah, I probably will. Am I going to remember any of it the same way that I remember those moments like in Fallout or the way that I remember the villain in Mission Impossible 3? No, I'm probably not going to. Yeah, I, man, I, I, I mean, like you said, I'm not as positive on it even as you. It's just I don't feel like there's 
anything that would draw me back to this movie. Hmm. Um, the the stunt I would rather rewatch one of the earlier Mission Impossible's if I want to see you know some of the some of the cool action sequences. I think there's better storytelling in some of the other uh, installments. Um, this one's long. <laughs> it, it it feels like there's there's a lot of muchness to this movie, but there's not a whole lot of there there. Like I don't know that I don't know that there's a whole lot here now that I've experienced it the way I would experience a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Is there a reason to you know buy a ticket and get get on again? For me, not really. Yeah, makes sense. I can't really argue with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed it a little bit more, listeners. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed a little bit more than I did. Either way, though, we're interested in knowing what your experience with Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 was. Uh, you can tweet us at Pod on Twitter or hit us up on Letterboxd at that same screen name. You can also shoot us an email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about paprika in the watchlist segment here in a second. Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there who are helping us keep the conversation about movies going. And Sarah, as always, you had a uh, Twitter question that you posed. And because we did spend a lot of time in the previous segments talking about not just this Mission Impossible, but the franchise as a whole, that made it a very appropriate choice to ask the question that you asked. Yeah, I wanted to know which of the predecessors to Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 does our audience prefer? And we heard back from quite a few listeners. So Christy Olson responded with Rogue Nation. The entire Vienna opera sequence alone makes it the standout for me. I love the way Nessun Dorma is then incorporated in the score as Ilsa's theme for the rest of the film. So good. And that's a good point. I think Ilsa is such a great character in all of these movies. I really love any time that Rebecca Ferguson shows up. The the franchise has never had a better co-star for Tom Cruise than Rebecca Ferguson. And her, I, I'm right there with Christy. I, I've already tipped my hand that I like number one the best, but Rogue Nation would probably be my number two, and a lot of it is because Rebecca Ferguson just owns that movie. She absolutely does. I completely agree with you there. Uh, Seth T. Hani uh, responded with, I've only seen the first four, but I pretty handily prefer the first. So Kevin, you have an ally here. Um, he did also say that we did just see all six on Blu-ray for sale. So they picked it up and they're working through their uh, through the series with the kids, probably watching Ghost Protocol the night that he responded back to us. So Seth, if you're listening, would love to know what you think about Ghost Protocol there. Um, Philip Marinello of the Substance Podcast responded with Spectacle, Fallout, Film, MI3. And I asked for a little bit of clarification because I wanted to know why he liked MI3 so much. And he responded back with a genuinely menacing villain with Philip Seymour Hoffman and personal stakes, along with all the great action set pieces, plus Simon Pegg's intro to the series. Yeah, uh, I you know, it's MI3 is almost it, it's almost as much of a departure in some ways as Mission Impossible 2 is from from kind of the what we think of as the the pattern just giving Ethan Hunt a wife and kind of like a very normal domestic life mm-hmm. as MI3 does like we've not seen anything close to that in any of the other installments and it's just it's an interesting direction to take the franchise it kind of feels like an odd duck given where we are now but I don't know it's it's an interesting one for sure. Ethan feels probably the most vulnerable overall 
of any of the movies in number three, I think. And I appreciate that movie for that reason, too. And of course, Hoffman. I mean, yeah. Maybe he's so good. He's He's so so good good in that movie. (laughs) Especially when he's playing Ethan Hunt flustered, pretending to be Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like, I just think about that sequence all the time. I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. I really do, too. Um, Ron Sturry also responded with Ghost Protocol, specifically because of the stunts. And he also thought Jeremy Renner was great. And for me, I think it's a toss-up, honestly, amongst the latter three. So four, five, and six. But if you... Asked me on any given day, I probably would say Ghost Protocol, specifically because of the Burj Khalifa climbing sequence, and then the dust storm chase immediately afterwards. I mean, no arguments there. That is just a, an incredible sequence. It's so, so good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ron also uh, wrote in to us with his thoughts on uh, The Last Picture Show. So we did have that for our watch list segment last week. And Ron mentioned that he and his wife happened to see the last picture show for the first time in the theater in 1972. So that's uh, really great. He went on to elaborate in an email. He said, hello, Sarah and Kevin. I so enjoyed Friday's podcast on Indiana Jones 5 and the last picture show. And for once, I did watch a film along with you and actually dug out my old copy of the last picture show. My wife and I saw it in the theater in 1972 when we were 24. I remember that I thought it was good, but it didn't stay with me much. Wow, what a difference 51 years makes. It blew me away when we saw it this week, and I appreciated both your takes on it. That was a great email. Thanks so much for writing in, Ron. That was a wonderful email to receive. So yeah, thank you for watching along, Ron, and thank you for writing in. It was really nice to read your thoughts and, and hear your thoughts about that movie. Yeah, uh, I, I I mean, I wish I could share some more thoughts. Ron had a lot in this email that, that he sent to us, but we, you know, we may not have the time on the air, but Ron, we really appreciate reading through all of those. And now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We watch it and then we discuss it. So, Kevin, for this week, you picked Satoshi Kon's Paprika from 2006. And I'm just going to give a quick rundown of the plot. The DC Mini is a machine that allows the user to share dreams. It's a remarkable technological development with a lot of possibilities, especially in the field of therapy. Until the DC Mini is stolen and used to infect people with delusionary dreams. So Detective Toshimi Konakawa and a young therapist named Paprika join forces to find the thief, a search that becomes a race against time as dreams and reality begin to merge. And Kevin, I'm really curious to know what your connections are between this and the Mission Impossible movies. I mean, it feels kind of like there's an impossible mission here. There's a little bit of that technological angle that we were getting at with our review of this most recent installment, but I'm curious to know if you were thinking of anything else there. Yeah, so there there are a couple of tie-ins. Uh, the main character uh, is uh, kind of a, a super... Not a super spy, but super operative of sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, only uh, her uh, expertise is in the world of dreams, rather in the world of spycraft. There is, of course, the the DC Mini, which is the. Um, sorry, dice messed that up. Nope, it's the DC Mini. All right. <clears throat> There's also, of course, the the DC Mini, which is a fantastic piece of technology that is almost mystical in the way that it it works and interacts with the real world and of course uh just like mission impossible the stakes couldn't be higher 
when the uh, technology falls into the wrong hands. So ah. there's there's all there there's that tie in as as well. And you know there's an interesting link also I think with how much Tom Cruise just you know as a as a producer and kind of a driving creative force behind Mission Impossible. He obviously he loves movies and just kind of like the mm. magic of doing crazy things on screen. And I feel like Paprika also has the spirit of just not just being in love with, you know, dreams and the wonderful things that an imagination can conjure up, but also the specific way that movies can kind of realize that for people other than just, you know, the person who's having those dreams or imagining those things. So mm. sharing that vision is something that Tom Cruise and Satoshi Kon both do in their respective movies. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. That that movie connection in particular, I think, makes sense. Especially because movies are, I, I think I've heard them described occasionally as almost like a shared hallucination that you're all watching at the exact same time, which is kind of what you get with some of these dreams, especially as, as reality and the dreamscape begin to merge. So, yeah. That's a wonderfully galaxy-brained take, and I commend you for it. I, I and I made that pick before I'd even seen the new Mission Impossible, so I'm very pleased with how <laughs> with how nicely they dovetailed. They definitely did. Yeah. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on it, though. I, I mentioned at the end of last week's episode that I really thought you'd dig this movie. So moment of truth, was I right to make that assumption? On an artistic like animation level absolutely yes i really like the way that this movie is put together there is a cruel streak through this movie that i was not expecting oh yeah and it's one that i felt a little bit nervous about when it first showed up and then as i continued to watch i kind of felt as though it was left a little bit um unexamined and so it, this is a movie that i admire quite a lot I don't know if it sits right with me necessarily. And so I'm hoping to unpack that with you a little bit more. Hopefully I'm, I'm getting a little bit of a, I don't know, a, a more negative read on it then. And maybe you can help me talk that out a little bit because this movie, I really don't like the way that it treats the character of Tokita specifically. So there is a, a character, the inventor of the DC mini in particular, um, who the movie treats almost as a combination of a child and a beast all at the same time. And a lot of that comes out in the way that the character has been designed. He's very fat. And I have a hard time with movies that tend to treat fat characters with that sort of shorthand of fatness as being the inability to control one's urges or the inability to basically be treated as a human being, essentially. And this movie has that thread throughout it. And part of that is because that's the way that Tokita is treated by his colleagues. Like The man's a professor. He's a doctor. He has a PhD. He's clearly very smart. But everybody else around him continues to talk down to him because he is incapable of controlling his urges. He's continually overeating. He's unable to literally fit within the bounds of the buildings that he's walking in. And one of his colleagues kind of speaks of him almost as though he's a child. And then we learn later on that she's actually in love with him and she's been repressing a lot of those feelings towards him. And 
her character arc and journey is coming to reconcile herself to the fact that she has these feelings for him. But at the same time, he's still only ever an object. And he's the character that this remarkable technology comes from, but it's almost as though he doesn't fully understand the consequences of creating it in the first place. And I don't know that the movie ever fully reckons with the way that the characters around Tokita treat him and the way that the movie itself frames him as an almost monstrous object at different times. So mm. that's a that's a thread that I had a really difficult time with. And it's not one that I've heard much of a critique about. So it was something that I really, it really surprised me watching this movie for the first time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do think there's there's something to what you say about the way the film evinces a certain perspective, not just on Tokita, but also on Paprika herself. Mm. Uh, Rewatching it this time, like, it feels like there are times when the perspective of the movie on these characters is um, not not a comfortable place for the audience to be in. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned the way that Tokita is sort of uh, framed as... I I don't know that I would, I would, like... I I don't know that I would go as far as you say, as you would say as like it, he's framed as a beast or as monstrous or as um or as a punchline. I think the movie's perspective on him is more complex than that. Hmm. He is he is though the first thing that the movie notices about him, the first thing that the movie emphasizes about him and repeatedly emphasizes about him is his weight, mm-hmm. his appearance. Um uh Paprika also the way that she's kind of framed as a very desirable person, Mm -hmm. the way that a lot of the male characters react to her as sort of like, well, of course we just want her Mm -hmm. is again, like it's, it's not that two dimensional, but there's, there are moments in the film where it feels a little bit like it slips into that a little bit. So I do understand that perspective. Mm -hmm. I don't agree that Tokita is wholly a punchline or reduced to his compulsions though Hmm. there is i I think there the movie is very clear that he does possess um courage and kind of a poetry to him that um are admirable Hmm. um unequivocally so um in one scene uh, Tokita is talking about his inspiration for creating the the DC Mini. He's speaking uh, with his colleagues and also with a detective who's there to sort of figure out what's going on when uh, when the dreams invade the waking world and when uh, the miscreants who have stolen a couple of machines are kind of invading the dreams of others. And so they're kind of trying to get to the bottom of this and they're talking to Takeda about why he created it. And the way he talks about it as wanting to share dreams, um, wouldn't it be wonderful if um, people could understand each other on a subconscious level as well as a conscious level? Hmm. Um, that's a very, that's a lovely thought, I think. Um, the way that it's written, I think, is... Um, Cone is is very clearly saying like this is a laudable uh, impulse uh, on his part to invent such a 
such a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And also the way visually he's framed in answering that question, the the detective asks him about the backstory. And the way that Takeda is framed is his head is kind of in the bottom third of the frame and a window is behind him and it's just blue sky and clouds behind him. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in that moment, Cone is, is showing that he literally has his head in the clouds but he's he it's also it's not just immaturity it's also just he's idealistic maybe Hmm. and i think the the line between a lack of maturity or naivete maybe and um simple idealism and and um believing the best of people and believing the best of technology's um potential um I think that's something that is sort of wrapped up in the person of Takeda um, in a way that I, I found still very engaging and I liked quite a bit. So that's my defense. I don't know if you're convinced by that. I'm not fully convinced, although I do appreciate the defense. Um, I like the framing that you just described there. For me, I think it felt a little bit more like an immature approach towards technology. And maybe that's because, I, I don't know, like... 17 years on, I feel a little bit jaded about people who invent things only expecting the best out of them and not really thinking about the worst results of what's happening here. And and here we do get some of those bad results out of a potentially very good invention. But Takeda is also um, literally built a lot like the dolls that populate a lot of these dreams too. He's he's built kind of childlike and he is presented in a way that feels childlike to me in a way that I think diminishes his intelligence in the view of the movie and not just in the view of the characters around him. Or at least that's the way that I received that imagery anyway. Mm, man, I, I I don't know. Like there's there's a lunch scene where they uh Takeda and his boss and Paprika kind of they, they they all go to lunch and you're right there is kind of uh, a running gag throughout the the scene where he's just he's ordering dish after dish after dish and just wolfing it down mm-hmm. so fair point that said um the the conversation takes a turn to towards they think they know who's stolen the machine mm-hmm. and it's somebody who's close to Takeda who helped him invent it and the way that he reacts to that revelation, um, he he says, we need to track him down and stop him. I, f- I take it very personally hmm. that I meant this invention only for good and my colleague who helped me make it is using it for evil. Um, I think that moment shows that he has a lot of moral backbone and a deep sense of right and wrong like he do, he doesn't feel like a child in that moment he feels like hmm. a man who is capable of moral courage hmm. and i think his later choice to actually go into the dream world in a perhaps ill-advised uh bid to save the day um is also kind of evidence of courage that isn't just naive but is also him genuinely wanting to do what's right so man i don't know i th- i think he's I think he's he's a more complex character and you're giving him credit for. That might be so. Um, I don't know. In the dream, he also ends up literally being transformed into a child's toy. And so I, I kind of read that choice to mm. go in and forge ahead as being a very impulsive, almost childish one. But I do get your point about the sequence where he says, like, I take it very personally. And I, I do think that the movie tries to complicate him a little bit more Um, Then maybe I initially gave him credit for specifically with the way that 
he ends up like he ends up getting married to Chiba to to Paprika to Paprika's alter ego essentially, and there is a reconciliation I think between Paprika, the dream self of this character, and Doctor Chiba, who is like the character within the real world where she comes to terms with the fact that she's actually in love with him and has been this whole time, and. Paprika's reaction to that, I think, threw me a little bit off guard because the way that she treats that realization is that I've known this all the time and I'm going to dismiss it. And then the movie still ends with the two of them getting together. And I do like that and appreciate that. It still felt like Takeda was was still a little bit of an object within this other character's personal journey because he's sort of endgame. Usually we see that with female protagonists, so it felt a little bit unusual to me, but I don't know, I still found it a little bit jarring. Hmm. Well, we've we've kind of talked a lot about the characters. I want to talk about the dream stuff, because you yes. did mention that you liked the the visuals and the animation here. Loved it. Um, so I do want to talk about uh, <laughs> that part of this film. When I saw it for the first time, I saw this after I first saw Christopher Nolan's Inception. Mm, I remember mm-hmm. Inception just being, you know, on a first viewing, just being like, wow, it's so complex and there's so much going on. Um, but having watched Paprika, it really threw into sharp relief just kind of how quotidian a lot of the imagery in Inception is. I like Inception fine. I, I, I still enjoy that movie, but I think it leaves a lot on the table when it comes to kind of realizing what a world of dreams is actually like and what it would be like to try to consciously navigate a subconscious realm um so i'm i that's what i really like about this film i want to know what your reaction was to some of the the imagery and the way that cone uses it to dovetail with like movie making yeah um it's funny that you mention nolan because i think nolan actually visually quotes paprika in a couple of points like there's a dream sequence in which one character chases another down a hotel hallway Mm -hmm. and that felt very much of a piece with the sequence with um inception spinning hallway where joseph gordon is is fighting a goon it's a great sequence and i i do think that Nolan has a point with making his dreams mundane because they're literally being used as like corporate warfare and subterfuge. Like there's going to be a level of of almost bland boringness to them. But you're right. I don't think you can pull off any other dream sequence quite like the way that Satoshi Kon is able to do that here. And what I loved about the artwork is that it feels so seamless. Like so much of it is the animation and the warping of reality, but a lot of it is also the smart way that this movie edits in the uncanny and it does so just in small snatches at first until you realize something's off and then it goes whole ham into, oh no, you are in a dream and something's really not right here and you can't pinpoint what exactly it is because all of it is uncanny. So I sat up and took notice within that immediate first dream sequence that starts with um, a circus and a character who's trying to track somebody else down within that circus and we sort of shift perspective every so often throughout that sequence before shifting into something that feels like it's coming from another movie and then another movie and then another movie. And it's it's quoting things like Roman Holiday and it's also quoting things like um, just spy like pot boilers, essentially. And it does so with such precision and it does so with just 
I don't know, the colors are just so great. And mm-hmm. the imagery is really great. And it's economical, but it's also beautiful. And it feels like there's a lot of movement almost for the sake of movement, which is kind of how I experience dreams to begin with anyway, is that there's just a lot going on in there and not all of it's going to make sense and it's going to be jumbled together. And the wonder here is that all of that jumble still has that point of shared dreams and working towards an idealistic world and then having that kind of be, you know, thwarted by people who would use that technology for ill. I just, I, I did love that quite a lot. I I like how Cone is able to even use the the camera as, as a way to suggest the way dreams kind of bleed into each other in, in a way, in ways that can't be, that, that don't make physical sense. So at one point, Paprika is, she's kind of walking down this hallway and there are these, um, the, these shelves lining the walls and she's, she's walking towards uh, something at the end of the hallway that she sees that seems interesting to her. And the way that she's framed, she's sort of like, uh, she starts on the right side of the frame. She's walking towards the left side of the frame. She proceeds down the hallway and she walks off frame. The camera stays stationary. And then we see her pop up from behind one of the, shelves as like a tinkerbell like fairy and continue flying in a completely different direction but she's still flying towards the same she's still flying to the same destination but she's not proceeding in a spatially consistent way mm-hmm. and the way that that transition is made feels very dreamlike but he doesn't do it by it's not a scene where there's a whole lot of wild and crazy imagery it's just the way that he plays with the frame and uh where he chooses to focus the camera's attention that i i that feels great yeah. like it, it feels dreamlike in a way that doesn't it, that's not showy but still discombobulating yeah he's flexing i think he's he's using a lot of the tools within a filmmaker's toolkit intentionally in a way that feels a little bit off-putting because that's kind of how dreams work too and he tells us that he's going to do it because earlier in the movie, there's a conversation between Paprika and the detective about movie making and using that eye line and making sure that you're not violating crossing the eye line when you're having a conversation between two characters. And he violates the eye line within that conversation. And then he goes and does it again when Paprika turns into a pixie when she's exploring this person's dream. And both work perfectly because I think they help to clue you in that what you're watching isn't necessarily real, but that doesn't make it any less true for the characters who are experiencing it. Yeah, I I love that trick. It's so good. Uh, What did you make of... So one thing that I I saw to bring Nolan back in about uh, into this conversation, uh, a comment that was often brought up about Tenet is the... It, a very divisive movie. I didn't like it very much. Um, but a lot of the defenders w- would bring up the the one line from Tenet saying, uh, you can't understand it, you just have to feel it. Mm-hmm. And that defense, I don't buy it all for Tenet. I buy it a lot for this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, since this was your first viewing through, this is my second viewing through, um, and the narrative still kind of like, I, I kind of, had to stop and think, wait a minute, what, what is actually going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, to me, it doesn't matter. But since it was your first viewing, what was that experience like for you? I think 
if it weren't for the movie's treatment of Tokita, I think I would have been a little bit more like gung-ho, yes, absolutely, I'll surf on these vibes for forever. I think because I was having a hard time getting hung up on the treatment of that character, that was something that didn't fully necessarily cohere for me, specifically because um, the chairman, who is the one who has actually stolen this piece of technology that his own employees are developing, talks about dreams as being a refuge from an inhumane reality, where he, he essentially wants to recreate the world in his own image. That's something that... It's the sort of delusions of grandeur that make perfect sense, and it's also the sort of thing that you could probably pull off with a character literally reshaping reality if you have a piece of technology like this. I think that there was an inconsistency between the cruelty of the real world versus the cruelty of the dream versus the cruelty of paprika towards Takeda, where I was just like, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance here, so this doesn't fully work for me. That being said... This is also essentially a really colorful film noir, and I don't really need a coherent plot in order for a film noir to work, as long as you can coast on the vibes of it. And for me, I was able to coast on the vibes up to a certain point, and they didn't fully carry me across the finish line, but they got me close enough, largely because I just appreciated the artistry behind the imagery for it enough that it was more or less okay. <laughs> I, I don't know that the uh, the film noir connection uh, registered with me, but that's a that's an interesting take. I like that read a lot. There's a detective main character. It's a film noir. Yeah. I, well, and, you know, even though I don't think, if, if I have one quibble with the movie, it's that I don't think the mystery is all that engaging as a mystery. The, no. <laughs> it's the evil CEO. It's always the evil CEO. You mm-hmm. know? That's, it, the, the mystery isn't fully satisfying but I think you hit the nail on the head when you say that just like film noir, a lot of it is more about the vibe mm-hmm. rather than the narrative, the plot, or or even theme necessarily. It's it's more just about the mood that is created and whether you're able to surf on that. Kind of the way that Paprika surfs on a, a bit of cloud when she mm-hmm. goes into the into the dream world. Um I don't know. For for me, even though I get a little bit lost by by the movie in terms of just kind of really sorting through whether it's actually playing fair by its own rules. By the end of the movie, I'm, I'm, I just feel like it doesn't matter so much. And I think a lot of it comes down to the way that Cone kind of explicitly draws a parallel between the, you know, dreams and, and movie making and technology. At one point he even says, uh, Paprika even says uh, that, you know, isn't the internet basically just uh, another form of dreaming? Mm-hmm. Which this movie came out in 2006. So this was before, you know, social media or where kind of we all got internet brain poisoning. It, you know, the the internet was still kind of, we were still figuring out exactly what it was going to be like for everybody to live there. Mm-hmm. So for cones sort of have the insight that it's a place that is, both seems very real and also is not real in a similar fashion to dreams, I thought was really a a very interesting take. And I think it's a pretty perceptive use of the genre of science fiction too, which tends to just extrapolate something that you see in the real world, at least the most successful sci-fi does anyway. And here, 
the extrapolation is that if you let technology consume you, it will consume you completely and you won't be able to tell what is real from fake particularly well at all. And here we get that with those delusionary dreams that everybody ends up sharing. It seems like an inherently good thing that all of these characters are working on. And once it gets applied in the wrong hands, that all kind of falls apart. And it's also something that nobody really seems all that interested in resisting because they've already fallen under the spell of the dream. They're perfectly content to join in that parade and they don't really see anything wrong with it because for them, reality is the dream at that point. And I find that deeply unsettling. I also found it deeply unsettling that it's a lot of household appliances walking at the front of that parade, which I don't know, maybe this is my slightly Luddite tendencies coming out, but I refuse to use any like smart home devices specifically because I don't like the idea of my house knowing like whether or not I'm out of milk, you know? (laughs) I I mean, Tom Cruise would probably agree with you there. Yes. (laughs) Like it's it's definitely something that goes, I I agree with you that the, the way that it kind of weaves in that kind of luddite strain into this into the story is really engaging um i i don't know i i like how because it is kind of trying to surf on its own vibes it's able to sort of suggest all these connections between dreams and technology and art making in ways that feel right but you i don't know that i could fully articulate it, at least not off the cuff here in a conversation um, but like watching the movie, it still, it, it makes sense in the way that a lot of dreams make sense. It's a lot of really good visual association, I think, which is a smart move on Cone's part because filmmaking is by nature a visual medium. And if you have to explicitly tell your audience everything that they need to know about the movie, honestly, I think you've kind of failed in a way because you should be able to tell a little bit more about those characters based on that association or based on the strength of the editing too. I mean, and and that's kind of where I come back to poor poor Christopher Nolan in Inception. Like there's so much explaining in Inception and he's just like, you just need to you need to let it ride, man. <laughs> <laughs> you need to you need to let the, the good vibes come. Yeah. That works. Well, I, I thanks for, for watching Paprika. Mm-hmm. I, I know that the vibes weren't as good for you, but uh I, I'm glad that you went on this uh, dreamlike odyssey with me. Yeah, I was glad to go on the trip, honestly, and I was glad to hash that out a little bit. I feel like I feel a little bit more charitable towards the movie now, having had this conversation. Still, don't fully agree with you, but we're we're getting there. All right, well, glad to hear that, uh, listeners. That is our review of Satoshi Kon's Paprika. If you were watching along with us for this watchlist segment, very curious to hear uh, how the vibes shook out for you in your own viewing uh, experience with this film. Are you team Sarah? Are you team Kevin? I gotta know. (laughs) Hit us up on Twitter, over email, or on Letterboxd to let us know about that. We are going, we're going to go back more towards groundedness. We're going uh, back to Nolan. We're going back to Nolan. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, I, I dogged on him a little bit here in this segment, but I'm so excited about Oppenheimer Mm -hmm. for, for lots of reasons. We'll get into it next week, but that's coming up. Um, for the new release uh, next week. And Sarah, you are going to be pairing it with another biopic. Yeah, the 1970 film Patton, starring George C. Scott, which um, 
no galaxy brain connections here. It's just a biopic about a man who was involved in World War II. <laughs> so, looking forward to to catching up with that one. I've I've seen a couple of scenes as probably many of us did in high school history class, but mm-hmm. haven't watched it from beginning to end. So I'm looking forward to getting that rectified. It's a really good watch. I'm looking forward to watching listeners, it again. Listeners, if you want to watch along with us for Patton, it is available to rent on demand from Amazon Prime and other streaming outlets. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us, listeners. Seeing and Believing is brought to you, of course, by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.